podcast ain't played nobody. Godfrey, do you have the the boil water and the and the the bed sheets and whatever else they were well, that, not, that people always had running around when they were having a baby in the sixties? I mean, I I will probably I'm going to go ahead and say probably won't deliver it myself. I've thought about it. I don't think I'm going to do the delivery on my own. Well, I don't really think that was the point. I think they just that, that was get some boil water. Like I I, I don't really know. If they knew why, but yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, just like, you know, you and I have both gone, gone through the process once and I wouldn't recommend doing it, but I'm not you. Yeah. I don't know if boiling water ever factored in the last time. I, I was always curious what, like, also, uh, one thing that we've learned, uh, by the way, this is podcast ain't play nobody. It's a college football marriage of numbers of words. He's the robot Bill Connolly. He invented the S and P plus analytics system. He's written multiple books there on Amazon. Uh, my name is Stephen Godfrey. I can give you an accurate definition of the term mucus plug, and it's not what you think. Um, one of the things, uh, since this is now the home for um, husband or fathers-to-be, uh, just, just hardcore dad talk in general, um, the hemming and the hawing that you see in movies and television, that doesn't happen. It's no. very, very calm, unless there's like a problem in the pregnancy. It's, it's not the, like, all that. I was very disappointed last time. It yeah, was we in never, no way like a like a Hugh Grant in nine and a half months, the kind of running around and doddering. None of that. Yeah, I mean, all I was supposed to really do was remind her to breathe. It didn't yeah, tell. Yeah. We, we didn't practice breathing. It was just literally, hey, you you need to inhale again, and you need to yeah. So yeah, here's the good news. I'm here for one more week as we wait on baby number two, uh, James Gray Godfrey. Um, the good news is. I am for sure, um, thanks to modern medicine and, and just a lot of really kind of gross details that I wigged out. Uh, I, didn't, I don't think I wigged you out earlier when I was discussing it off air, but um, some very specific things next week. You, the listener, don't need to know about. This is going to be my last podcast at least for two weeks, okay? The great news about that, Bill, is that I don't really care who you're bringing on here to replace me. Uh, what I care about is I can pull the rug out from under whatever content you have to fill in my absence, and I'm going to claim and plant the flag that right now we do the entire AAC today on the show. Wow. wow. Bold. Where are you specific? Now, that would that would normally fall on next week's. We would start on next week, right? Well, yeah, basically. So I uh, wrapped up the Mountain West today with my power rankings, which we can talk about here in a minute, too. Okay. Um, and then I started, man, I, I, I you know, I didn't, I, I was a little behind yesterday. Dog had another couple of episodes where, you know, it sprinkled for eight seconds in the middle of the night, and therefore I lost two hours sleep. Um, so I wasn't really with it yesterday, but today I've, I've knocked out for the, for the listeners a piece on uh, 1965 USC UCLA. Uh, a quick little blurb on why I would pick Zach Cunningham with the number one overall damn pick in the draft because I don't have to be right. I just love Zach Cunningham. Uh, piece on NFL quarterbacks and draft radars and, and stats and nerd stuff and whatnot and um, Mountain West Power Rankings and UConn Preview. So the UConn Preview is up. Tomorrow is Tulane. Uh, and now, you know, the, the ball's rolling downhill here and we'll over the next uh, little more than two weeks we'll have – uh, the AAC lined up, but this might be our only chance to talk about it. So we need to. Let's oh, talk. Let's we're talk. gonna, we're gonna. Nobody comes on my podcast unless I'm too busy to to talk to Bill, and then nobody talks about America's conference. No one, but this guy right here, um, Bill. You and I, uh, we freelance literally, and and in the fun sense of the term, uh, for 
da, 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 the Athlon magazine. Yes. So, um, in addition to me trying to create a '90s rap beef with you and Phil Steele, we actually do have a financial stake in that we um, contribute to the Athlon College Football Preview every year, as do a lot of sports writers that we know. Um, in that, this is the best. This is the best and most balanced. As if anyone would be shocked that it was the American. This is the best and most balanced conference preview. Here's why. Um, like two weeks ago, I had to get on the phone with anonymous, an anonymous coach, two anonymous coaches in the American Athletic Conference for the little sidebar things in the Athlon preview where the coaches give anonymous scouting reports of their conference rivals. This, and I told, I told Mitch Light, the editor-in-chief at Athlon, this is the cattiest concept in college football. <laughs> um... Because you get just right out of the gate, like I have a so I have an uh, anon sourcing policy, anonymous sourcing policy um, at SB Nation, where um, which I try and get that line to where you can't you can't disparage someone's character unless you go on the record. You can you can illustrate a situation better. You can divulge information that would normally you wouldn't be able to do on the record. I try and keep it traditional. Like we are pretty good with with on off record policy stuff. Like I've got a piece on Laramie Tunsil that's going to go up next week that's built mainly on off the record uh, comments, but they don't individually disparage a person. You know, that's how I try and keep that line going. Um I kind of had to steer people back into a, a not a blander territory, but a more polite territory. When you get someone, when you get a coach who's comfortable with you, who knows that they're not going to be attributed, they will dog somebody out. It's bad. <laughs> it is. It is a lunchroom table. Um, how do we want to approach this beast? Do we want to go? Um, do we want to go say, bad? Bad to good? Headline makers? I mean, this is just Christmas morning. So. Um, I'm going to say, because I've, I've already, of course, have my spreadsheet pulled up, mm-hmm. um, naturally. I wake up with my spreadsheet pulled up. Oh, that sounded bad. Never mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so abort, I, say let's go, I say let's go alphabetical, uh, starting with the Cincinnati Bearcats. Tell me, tell me something about hey. the Cincinnati Bearcats. Uh, Ohio man seeks to reclaim Ohio glory with Ohio program. Okay. Um, Next. Oh, um, no, 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 not at all. I think I like Luke Fickle. Um, I think he personally saved my ass one year at the title game when they won the title against Oregon because he was just someone who was giving great quotes and not a lot of people were hearing them. And so that's always something that you want when you're trying to write a game story that like 400 other media are. Um, and also it was so matter of fact that night because remember, this was the Oregon offense that was going to be unstoppable. You remember that, Bill, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and it was it was uh, very much stoppable. Although I would say, in hindsight, it was mainly like Ezekiel Elliott stopping it because they were getting like four and a half yards on average on first down or something like that. Well, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, they they slowed it down, yeah. and and that's all you could hope to do. They slowed it down enough to win to win comfortably, and and that's yeah. Fickle, I always have a problem. Like this is why I lean on numbers sometimes. I have the same like small sample reactions to things. Um, that I, I, you know, the, the kind of small sample biases that I try to avoid, like my brain goes there automatically. And so when I first heard that they were hiring Fickle, I'm like, ah, what? He went seven and six at Ohio State that one year. What's that going to, what can he really bring to the table? That's dumb. That's a very dumb way of looking at it. And it took mm-hmm. me a while to kind of move past it. But that Super was the dumb. one, it was like the one true sample we had of him as a head coach. So that's a, immediately where my brain went. But that just sure. doesn't, 
interim situations are so weird and hard. And um, so if you ignore that, and I mean, you know, the rest of his experience probably outweighs it. Um, he was a solid offensive core or defensive coordinator um, in the state in which he now resides and, and lords over a, not a big time program. AAC, I guess it doesn't qualify, but um, over a, a very, uh, over an important program that can win a lot of games uh, mm-hmm. and win a lot of recruits. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's I mean, the important thing right there, Bill. This is not going to be a school where scheme philosophy is going to be the the, the dynamic through line when you define them, right? right. Cincinnati is never going to run X and therefore achieves whatever. It's not Boise. It's not an option school. Never going to happen. What they are is this weird subculture inside of Ohio, which is very specifically Cincinnati. Um, Urban Meyer himself touched on this. I did the Ohio State spring game, I don't know, four years ago now, and they were renovating at the shoe, and they went down to Paul Brown. And, you know, Meyer played at Cincinnati. He knows the area really well. So Cincinnati, and I asked Fickle about this, and he laughed. They, They used to, like, subvert talent away from Ohio State. So the Catholic schools there are so super dominant and very, very powerful and very influential. Like when you think Catholic culture, you probably think like Boston or Chicago. Cincinnati's right up there. They, if you go back historically and look at these schools like Moeller and uh, St. X and all those, like, I mean, if you're from Ohio, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. And if you are really even from Kentucky, um, those schools would send like tight ends to Notre Dame or they would send kids to, you know, basketball players to one of the Jesuit schools out of state. Um, they subverted Ohio State for years. And I'm not saying Fickle's going to play on that to, like, beat Ohio State on kids. Like, straight up, if Ohio State wants to go into Cincinnati and get a kid, they're going to get a kid. Right. But what Tommy Tuberville did really poorly was maintain community relations in Cincinnati. And when you're in that city and you're a city school, you've got to keep people interested. You've got to keep the community engaged where you have like families and kids who maybe don't want to grow up and go to UC. But when you, know, you, you create that enough of a spectacle so you can take your two kids who are under like 13 to go on a Thursday night to those games, you've got to do all that little stuff. And Fickle, they moved their spring practice around this year to different um, like community. Like I went, I went up there and they were at a high school. Um, which doesn't sound like much to anybody listening probably, but it's a big deal politically up there. So this is a super long-winded, complete non-football way of saying I think Fickle's a great hire for Cincinnati. I think he's going to be very successful at Cincinnati, but also I don't think it's going to be in the near future. They have to compensate for talent in some areas. Um, I will say off the top of my head that Tubbs had redshirted a lot of guys, so that's kind of strange to get fired in a year that you redshirt a lot of guys. It usually means that a coach thinks he's going to be there for a while. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I, I mean, like I said, it all makes sense. I, I do – the one reservation I still have is I like being able to, you know, talk to or listen to um, or kind of know about the head coach and look at their his offensive coordinator hire and his defensive coordinator hire to get a general impression of – culture or, or, or not culture identity I think if the culture is going to be fine what he's going to build he's going to recruit pretty well uh, but looking at his OC and DC on, on offense he got Mike Denbrock who was at Notre Dame for a while he was OC one year but otherwise just kind of receivers coach etc um, I think the, the Notre Dame offense kind of struggled with identity at times so that's that doesn't blow me away and on defense he got uh, Marcus Freeman who was on the Daryl Hazel uh, Ohio State slash Daryl Hazel uh 
tree, I guess, for a little while there, which defensively isn't the worst place to be. But I still, I don't know. I, you, you got to have an identity too and say, you know, not just with culture and recruiting, but here's how we're going to win games. I don't know that we see that yet, but I don't think we see it yet. And I don't even think they know yet. But, and this, so this is going to be a scratch here for them. It's not a year zero. I think you and I probably need to better define when we use concepts like year zero. The roster is not that bad. Right. So I think it's not a year zero, but I do think it's a feeling out process for Fickle, his staff, the roster, and that whole Cincinnati community. So I don't know, sub 500? Possibly. Uh, UConn. I, I, I just put up the UConn preview today. Um, Jason said that, Jason Kirk, our editor, said that he only laughed out loud four times while reading it. Is that up or down? Um, well, it, it basically, I, I assume number one was when I pointed out that UConn scored nine points all year in the first in the first quarter. Jesus, I, I mean that one. I, I, I even I tweeted about that when I was putting the piece together on like Sunday too. Like that threw me off. I knew they were bad. They were clearly a bad offensively. That threw me off because I mean they bought him out late in the year when he brought on a true freshman. Which by the way, tearing a red shirt off a true freshman to go get his butt kicked for three games is never. I, you know, that was, that was dicey to me. And then they got shut out twice when he was playing, but did regardless, you just, did you just throw a backhanded shade at Shea Patterson? Ha! Well, you did. You just, <laughs> at least, you just at least I had thought about that, but at least there was rationale behind it because the first stringer got hurt. Granted, uh, Bryant Sheriffs was hurt like all year, but he was still playing. Um, they didn't have to play the freshman and they played the freshman. Um, I think you know. I gave it. I gave the the Randy Edsel hire a C plus when it happened uh, in the coaching grades piece because I just don't like recycling. It's hard to you know whatever quote unquote capture the recapture the glory. It's hard to do that to begin with, and it's a lot. Uh, you know, tell me again with, about this alleged glory. Well, that's what I was gonna say. It's a lot shakier when the glory was winning eight games a year, and so I, I didn't love the hire. But then he he hired Rhett Lashley to run his offense. Which, I mean, I realize Auburn fans will laugh at the idea of that being an amazing hire, but it's a really freaking good hire for Randy Edsel to be able to pull off. And almost as importantly, he brought in Villanova's defensive coordinator. Villanova's defense was awesome last year. Billy Crocker runs like a 3-3-5-ish kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I, I was that proved to me that you know even if name recognition and quote-unquote recapturing the glory had something to do with his hire – Edsel's not treating this as a let's get the band back together situation. He was, he's trying to start fresh and, and uh, I, that's what I needed to see. So if I were to grade the, the higher now, I would almost say B or B plus. Cause I think it's easy to say, well, he'll raise the floor, but it didn't really do much to the ceiling. I think he's actually raised the ceiling, ceiling a little bit now. So I think for Lashley um, it's, it's nothing but a win situation. I know he's going to take a pay cut and I know the prestige isn't there at all. When you're under Gus Malzahn at Auburn, if you have any iota of success, it's going to be Gus Malzahn's uh, credit, right? Right. If you do, if you even make, I don't want to say marginal, but if you make a, let's just say you make a substantial statistical improvement in the fundamentals on that offense at UConn in the next two to three years, people are going to look at you in a totally different light because that's a way tougher task. And I'm not saying he didn't do anything or he didn't earn his paycheck at Auburn or any of that stuff. Um, you know, Auburn's perspective on their assistant coaches is always a little wonky, but this is just, to me, it makes total sense why he did it. I know other people want to laugh at it, but this this could be a, like, I mean, if they do get back to that, we joke, like, 7-8 win respectability, I think this could be a coming out party for Lashley, and then he's a head coaching candidate. Right, I mean, the thing about that, too, was, you know, last year, like, Auburn was an amazing team for about a month, 
Uh, they couldn't maintain it late in the year, yeah. uh, quarterbacks, et cetera. But for like a month, they were one of the five best teams in the country. And that coincided with when uh, when Malzahn gave Lashley play calling duties. Like the moment he finally said, okay, I, we need to change this up a little bit. Uh, you're calling plays. That's when they took off. Now, I mean, the defense had a massive role to play in that. So it wasn't like it was all Lashley. But I, I mean, I, I like this a lot. And the other thing about UConn too is that – yeah, but they got Arkeel Newsom, this running back, a little guy, uh, very explosive when he's in the open field. Hasn't found the open field in years, but is very good when he gets there. Uh, they've got a reasonably uh, decent set of, uh, you know, basically they just, they had no idea what they wanted to do offensively. And it always seemed like Bob Diaco was mm. using his offense kind of in the same way that Will Muschamp was in that just like, don't screw this up for my defense kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of actually trying to score points. Um, th- this drastic identity change, maybe it doesn't work at all. Maybe it, it's, it's a crash and burn kind of thing, but I'm actually just looking at the personnel. I think it'll fit. I think they will improve by a decent amount. Now improving by a decent amount, like I wrote in the preview means, uh, you know, like only being the, the number 100 offense in the country as opposed to 127. But if you do that and your defense resp- uh, uh, is able to kind of gain some traction and we know they can play good defense at UConn, then I mean you're you're st- suddenly kind of threatening to at least go like five and seven or six and six, and Possibly, so I mean yeah. that's that's great for a first year there after after what they after the way they bottomed out last year that'd be great. Uh, we gotta we gotta probably move faster with since there are twelve AACT. No, East Carolina. Um, yeesh. so yeah, the toughest part of the, the so the toughest part when I was talking to those coaches about like show me the program here that isn't the. Um, isn't the upstart, right? So this is a conference built of upstarts. That's why Bill and I love them. They do a lot of contrarian thinking, all that stuff. Like that's our surface level passion for this conference. When you look at the conference and you try and find someone that maybe is a little stuck or maybe is the forecast is bleak, it might be this program. When you get tired of winning six, seven, eight games a year uh, and you fire a guy for being pretty good but not great, you run the risk of, of going in the opposite direction. And that... You know, first year, you know, you never know what happens in a, in, a, in the first year uh, with a new coach. But um, that kind of felt like what East Carolina uh, went through last year. They wanted to aim higher, so they brought in Scotty Montgomery to mm-hmm. change things up. And, they, well, they went, what, three and nine, I believe. Uh, now, part of this, I believe, if I remember right, Philip, I haven't written this preview yet. Um, late in the year, I, either, I can't remember, Philip Nelson either got hurt or. Um, There's a lot. I just remember there were like a lot of turnovers like crippling bad turnovers i think maybe they led the if they didn't lead the nation i think they led the conference the the one coach i talked to about them he said we just like they were just sloppy like beyond sloppy on offense yeah i could see that um but you know they just first year you never want to jump to too far conclusions but this did not look good yeah they were minus 67 uh, 16 excuse me in uh turnover margin last year so not um, great bob not great. And some of that was bad luck. You know, there are minus 2.4 points per game in, in uh, my turnovers luck measure, but they also were losing games by 37 and 18 and 16 and 12 and 21 mm. and 24 and 35 and 27. They were only the only team that they were competitive with over the last two months of the year was Connecticut. Um, so, they, yeah, they beat NC State, probably the best team they played all year or second best, uh, and then just completely bottomed out a couple weeks later. So, Lots to do there. I mean, they they return a lot. They don't get Philip Nelson back, but they return a I don't know a decent amount, especially on defense. But yeah, that was 
We've seen it happen many times where you get tired of only uh, where you get tired of Glenn Mason territory, as I say, and you try to switch it up and you hire Tim Brewster. Um, that's kind of wow. That's kind of how it played out here. So far, so far, so far. One year, one year, one year, one year. Next. Okay. But that's the time. I mean, honestly, if you look at five years, and and I have to pick a, I have to pick someone who just, you know, somebody's got to be the doormat. That's the doormat. Okay. Uh, next up, Houston. I don't know. Do you have you do you have any familiarity with the Houston program? Houston mm, program? Not, not not in the least. Not at all. Okay. Um, well, we'll just skip them. Yep. It's not like SB Nation covers Houston anyway. So. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What do we say that we haven't said? I know. I was about to say, we should just be based in Houston and at this point, I'm pretty sure. But I'm fine with that, from a, yeah. especially from a food and weather standpoint. <laughs> Nobody um, at me about your humidity. I don't care. Um, okay, so broad strokes, not a lot changes and a lot changes because her, I do think you, you lose something, certainly not having Tom Herman philosophically, that I think this team is going to be the same in what you see on the field, um, how they respond and, you know, Major Applewhite is going to bear the brunt of a lot of unfair, weird comparisons on, like, culture and decision-making, and it's unfair, but that's why you're the head coach. You are paid to be put in situations of unfair comparison. Right. Um, I think, this is strange to say, I'm worried about their offense. Uh, That is not something I expected Mm. to say, but... but Okay, go on. Well, first... Even last year with, with Tom Herman, offensive genius, they were really, really reliant on Greg Ward Jr. at times. Um, like if he was banged up at all and couldn't run with the ball, couldn't provide that threat, they really just didn't really know where to go with the ball. Like Duke Catalan averaged three and a half yards per carry last year. year. Dylan Burden, the second stringer, averaged like 4.7. They just they didn't have much of a running game other than Greg Ward running the ball. And even he wasn't all that effective because they knew what was coming sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they lose him. They get back Linnell Bonner, uh, who's a really good, uh, t- well, solid number one receiver, I guess. Um, they return our offensive line to the, for the most part, but I'm just worried about their identity. And Brian Johnson, um, you know, he was, he was named offensive coordinator way too early at Utah, and it didn't really work out. He ends up at Mississippi State and does a good job of coaching uh, Fitzgerald last year. So, I mean, that's, that's fine. Maybe, you know, maybe my worries about quarterback aren't an issue. But I just I worry about their identity last year, um, you know, for any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that. They're the defense. I mean, Mark D'Onofrio, lots of experience with the the Al Golden School, uh, which is usually a pretty good defensive uh, influence. Miami Temple, Rutgers, Virginia, etc. Um, and they have Ed Oliver and almost the entire defense back. Mm-hmm. So I think. As strange it is to, as it is to say, I'm I'm much more confident in Houston's defense than their offense heading into next year. Um, but and I'm also like, I get it. Like when it comes to, um, you know, wanting to continue the culture that that Herman was building, and then I I sort of get the idea of like he better win next year or he's out. <laughs> you know that that high expectation that they're that. Uh, that your boy was was trying to set there, Mr. Tillman Fertitta. Mr. Tillman Fertitta. But man, that's tough. Like, what happens if they like? What is their schedule here? Let me pull that up. Uh, you, at you at UTSA and at Arizona to start. Yeah, and then, you you um, don't have a you don't have an Oklahoma type situation, right? And, and they right. view that as a negative because that means they won't get the big bold exposure. Well, I'm I'm more worried about them just winning games this year, and they start at UTSA, at Arizona, and then in week four, Texas Tech at home, and then at Temple. Like, if they're three and two after that stretch, like if they lose to 
well, Tech on one of the road games, or maybe they're two and three. They use a, lose a couple of the road games and lose a shootout to Tech. I, I mean, does that mean we're, we're, we're already starting to talk about Major Applewhite getting fired? Like, where, where's I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I really don't. Um, I, I think – well, let me back up. Okay, so Tillman Fertitta, who's the mega booster, um, I, I have some familiarity with. I'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, stay tuned, I guess, this summer. Um, there's a – a sentiment out there that you know he he was really mad about losing Tom Herman and he was I mean he's told me as much but he also understands college football I think a little bit better than than his quotes would probably make you think um this is a rebuilding year relative to Houston I do think everyone involved knows that um Kyle Allen has a lot of people excited, but you know there was a system with Greg Ward there was right. there was a there was a commodity there right. um. However, I don't know if it's necessarily a number, Bill, as it is like they fully expect to beat Arizona. They fully expect to beat UTSA. I don't really know how conference play shakes out. You know, it's funny, like Tom Herman, coveted coveted now Texas head coach, lost to SMU and Navy down the stretch. Nobody really ever talks about that. I mean, Houston went from being something that people like us really, we really wanted to see that AAC team in the playoff, right? That didn't happen because of all the reasons that critics of the G5 love to use, you know, depth and week to week and blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, I think it's more, I mean, I, I think it's more that they have to win those first couple games, Bill, than it is what they do down the street. If they're so, what I'm trying to say is that they're like nine and three this year or eight and four. I just think it depends on what the, the two, three, four losses are. And in a weird way, it's almost forgivable to like, your you know your team's banged up and you're tired and I think what well, they'll be on the road this year against Navy right yeah like that to me I think is a more understandable loss by the decision oh no it's there. at home I think it's at home against Navy but regardless yeah yeah I mean then like Arizona's hurt I mean I know we're not doing the Pac-12 preview right now but I mean it, things look bad for Rich Rod's Arizona like bad flat out um, and then if you follow Texas football, you know that like losing to UTSA was pretty much the beginning of the end for Tony Levine at Houston. The difference is this is like a way better UTSA team than what, um, gosh, was that still when I'm trying to think when they lost to UTSA? Yeah, that was still, um, it was Coker. It was was still Larry Coker's team. Um, I mean, Houston flat out to, to maintain the conversations that they like to have. I like to think that they have like being, being worthy of Texas and being worthy of Oklahoma, the team that they beat last year. They sure as hell don't want to lose to university of Texas at San Antonio, whose program has been around less than a decade, you know, um, they got right. a, that. That's a really big game. I know it's not a sexy, like, but it's a really big game for a lot of folks. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Alan, at A&M, that was obviously a super weird situation, especially in 2015. But, I mean, he, he, was, he was fine. Um, and, and against, you know, lesser defenses, he'll be better than fine, I guess. But I just, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a little concerned there. And, and, by the way, you know, last year, even with uh, Ward, they were 69th in offensive S&P Plus and 25th on defense. Uh, I, like, I, I, if, if they don't, if they're not in the top 30 again, or, or if they don't improve, it'll be disappointing to me because the talent there, especially with Oliver up front, is, is pretty impressive. And so maybe that's enough. Maybe they can get by with a mediocre offense that doesn't have an identity. But, yeah, like, that's – Two games into, if they're one and one, two games into his uh, span, uh, to his uh, coaching tenure, or two and two after four games, 
and he, we're already talking about hot seat stuff, then that, that sucks. I, I don't like that at all. Um, but well, I realized I, part of it was potentially for show, too. You know, yes. like everybody talking tough, but still. Um, and, and he's fine. And Applewhite himself is not really feeling that. Like, he, he gets it. I mean, you were talking about a offensive coordinators who maybe get promoted too early. He was the OC for Alabama in, in Nick right. Saban's first <laughs> season in 2007. He understands. And he was a quarterback at the University of Texas, which is pretty much when it comes to media scrutiny, I think all of those people should just leave Texas and go straight into, like, you know, government level crisis relations job because they <laughs> understand panic in a way that we don't. Um, so yeah, it'll be another insanely strange, fascinating year at Houston, and they will suck up a bunch of SB Nation bandwidth. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, live with it. Memphis. I Under, like okay, Memphis. Uh, underrated. Probably to me, the most underrated team in the country. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to commit to that just yet. But I um, really like this team. Uh, they get back Riley Ferguson. Yep. They get back Dorland Dorseus, the running back, who averaged like six yards a carry. Well, actually, they had a, a pair of running backs who combined for like six yards per carry and like 1,400 yards. Uh, they get back most of their receivers. They get back most of their offensive line. They get back uh, most of their front seven. The only area where they have any turnover at all really is the defensive backfield. This is a team that – uh, was okay on defense and good on offense. Now they get everybody back. Uh, this yeah. this this might be the most AAC team in the AAC this year. Why is that? Just in terms of like massive offensive potential and youth, uh, like young coach that who could be pretty exciting and just and kind of a general maybe on his way out if things break the right way. Right, and their schedule. Uh, is navigable. They play at Houston and at Tulsa, which, I mean, who knows about that, but their other road games this year are at UConn, at Georgia State, and at UCF. Obviously, we've talked about UCF, and we will talk about UCF, but, uh, you know, if, if UCF isn't a problem, they could technically go 4-1 or 5-0 and on the road. They get UCLA at home? Is that right? Did I? I believe so. I think, I believe that's right, yeah. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, because it's the back end of a 1-1. One and one. Yeah, so, uh, you know, UCLA has its own identity issues at the moment. But basically what I'm trying to say is there is not a single guaranteed loss on this schedule. ULM at UCF, UCLA, Southern Illinois at Georgia State, at UConn, Navy at home, at Houston, Tulane at home, at Tulsa, SMU, East Carolina. I'm not saying they're going to go 12 and 0, but the path to 10 and 2 is not bad at all. Beating UCLA sure as hell won't play like it, it like for instance Houston beating Oklahoma or right. I think of another good AAC like statement, you know, or or I know it was a bowl game but like UCF beating Baylor. It it's the best that they can do. You know, they can't control their schedule this year, but um, if they come out and, and really work over UCLA, um, then that needs that will be noticed by a lot of agents and a lot of athletic directors. <laughs> a right. lot. So, I mean, that's really, you know, best team we've talked about so far, and I have the least to say about it other than they could be very, very good. And that's, and, and but you just nailed it. That's the crux of why I think they're, I think that they are benefiting tremendously from the fact that we can't stop talking about you know, Houston and the Big 12 and, um, you know, or even like Scott Frost at UCLA, all these narratives that run around through this this weird conference that we love so much. Memphis is just good. They're just good at football. They shouldn't be, again, they should have fallen off relative to what Fuente had provided them sort of in a pocket of time. But they were that staff, I, I met a couple of them at AFCA this year and talked to them for a while. They were smart enough to come in and identify the exact same things that Fuente saw. Yeah. Um, I can't explain why it took decades for this to happen 
for a a city school in, in you know a FBS program to where there's a ton of talent to look around and go hey there's a ton of talent we shouldn't be absolutely awful all the time um, <laughs> they still have no facilities you know we're speaking of they're still never going to be a, a power five candidate I'm sorry but basketball just doesn't work for you and also their basketball program is in a huge thing yeah. right now yeah they need to figure that out yeah um, none of that matters. You don't have to worry about FedEx and the attention, the Big 12, and any of that stuff. They're just going to be really good at football. And I don't think they're going to keep this coach either. Um, I mean, th- that's not really a knock on them. Cincinnati doesn't keep coaches. You know, Brian Kelly goes to right. Notre Dame and D'Antonio and all those guys. Embrace um, your embrace your AAC-ness here and love your young coach and bring him to success and then love your next young coach too. I mean, if FedEx wants to pony up, FedEx needs to build them a stadium near campus. Yeah. I know the Liberty Bowl isn't as far from campus as like other schools that we talk about. Um, gosh, what's one that we did? We just Richard just do something for us at SB Nation on this distance. So uh, it's UConn's, isn't it? Yeah, I UConn's in East Hartford. Yeah, they're yeah. not even. Yeah, I mean Temple has this problem. Miami has this problem. Like Memphis has available land near their city-based campus. If you really want to be bold, you go and do what Tulane <laughs> did. I'm serious. You just yeah, go and do what yeah. Tulane did. Um, yeah. But I, I'd like I I knock Memphis a lot because I have so much experience having gone to college at Ole Miss. But like this is just they're they have the potential to be so much better than that cup of coffee that they had with D'Angelo Williams and Danny Wimprine. This is like a legit <laughs> good football team. Um, and just you know, anybody listening to this, don't hopefully none of you are sports writers because I'm a I'm a I mean that's a team that I'm interested in. We're going to go and do something on hopefully early on in the season because I think they're going to blow up. Yeah, it's quite possible, especially, I mean, having that UCLA game as a barometer is pretty much is pretty much perfect because that's yeah. a game that UCLA is just not going to be able to get up for. Uh, and they have to travel two time zones. UCLA could be, like, if the new coordinator hire yeah. on offense works, then maybe they're fine, but they might not be, and that's a perfect chance for a... Uh, Embattled head coach. Indeed. Uh, Navy. Um, our good friends, our good friends uh, in Annapolis. What do you say? Um, I mean, it's it, I, I'm, three things. I got three things. Okay, one, are they maybe, new things? Because I mean, at this point, I just well, feel like it's two of them are new for okay. this year. Number okay. one, they lose just about everybody on offense, and I'm not even going to pretend that that matters. Number two, <laughs> number two, they actually return a ton on defense, especially in the back eight. Um, you know, they actually have some legitimate like. Star like DJ Palmore, the the uh, senior outside linebacker is legitimately awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a couple of good. They've got a good cornerback in Tyrus Wooten. Um, they've got some good safeties or some exciting safeties. They play youth better than Air Force or Army does so far. Have so far at least. You know so why? They don't, it's it's not quite like Air Force where they lose nine starters on defense every year. Um, That's and 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 playing youth. It's so funny you brought that up just because. Having spent so much time with the Army staff, that's what they covet more than anything else. It's right. not anything that Navy or Air Force has. It's that once you create momentum in in a service academy option, it's really hard to stop it in terms of player development. That's why they play youth better than anybody else. Number three, somebody freaking hire Ivan Jasper as their head co- Jasper as their head coach. I want to see him as a head coach. I want the option this this awesome strength, uh, just this 
coaching tree that is incredible offense uh, with the option. I want it to continue. And I like I was mad when uh, some when Hawaii hired somebody else a couple of years ago. It turned out that Nick Rolovich did an amazing job his first 12 months in the year. So so fine. But somebody else hire Ivan Jasper or Jasper on, at the FBS level so that I can talk about him because he is an incredible offensive coordinator. Because, I mean, because exactly what I just said, they just lost Will Worth on offense and Mm -hmm. um, Sean White and most of their slot backs and Jameer Tillman, the only guy who ever caught a pass, and three offensive line starters. And do you think for a second that they are going to fall off very much offensively? No, of course not. And that's because Niamh Lolo and Ivan Jasper have just have mastered the option offense and they know how to coach it and they know how to adapt and they know how to build uh, talent for that system. Somebody hire him is all I'm going to say. Um, I think they're going to have a really uh, Navy year. And I do think that it'll be fun to see them having lost a game against Army. Um, you know, it, this is a team that doesn't care that they beat Tom Herman's Texas. They <laughs> they care that they lost to Army. So um, just, and I don't say that with any personal preference of mine, it's just interesting to see that because we haven't seen it in like, you know, almost years. two decades. So, um, you know, it's just fun to have that rivalry back. So Next South Florida. I don't know. Do you know anything about South Florida? A little bit. Um, all joking aside, um, Charlie is going to step into a culture and personnel situation that's going to be friendlier to him than anything he ever had at Texas. And before you scream at your podcast device, broadcasting, uh, whatever, I don't mean that, that this South Florida team is deeper or more talented or have has more recruits or whatever than Texas did. It's that this is a, like, South Florida as a function is more amenable to Charlie Strong than Texas ever was. Does that make sense? Yes. They are, um, and also they're, they're, they are pretty talented. Like, they do have good football players this year. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, and by the way, don't yell at me for the alphabetical order. I'm using the list uh, that I'm using has UCF, but then has South Florida. So really South Florida should have probably been last, but you know, I think we'll get through this together. Um, yeah. I mean, Quentin flowers is kind of probably the quarterback that Charlie strong wished he had la- the, the style of quarterback that he had, the, Absolutely. the, kind of the, guy, the, the guy who plays on his own and didn't have to rely on, uh, yeah, I, I think Bouchelle could be really, really good, but he just wasn't ready to turn that offensive around. He was a true freshman, Flowers is a tremendous rusher. He's an underrated passer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got a couple of big play guys coming back. He's got most of his linemen coming back uh, and, and most of the defense coming back. This is a team that if, if Willie Taggart had stayed would have been probably the, the mid-major favorite for the, uh, the P5 bowl or the G5 power bowl slot, whatever we call that. Uh, maybe they still are. They do have... You know, anytime you you make changes, you know, at at head coach, you never quite know how things are going to go. But Charlie's going to inherit a lot of pieces who will do exactly what he wants them to do. Flowers will probably have some another just amazing season and get no play for it whatsoever. (laughs) Everybody went down and wrote their Charlie Strong feature because they framed it around Texas. But um, that's one of the reasons he is so amenable to South Florida is that he doesn't have to put up with weird national conversation pantheon framework week to week like right he's just going to go coach football in an area of the country that he knows extremely well he's going to walk into that law lo- and i i don't say this in cliche i was in that locker room for uh the better part of like four and a half days strong is going to kill that locker room i mean he's going to absolutely have every single one of them 
um, in love with him. And he, I mean, I'm sure there'll be a couple issues right off the bat, as there always are when you have transitions. But he gets to be the kind of players coach he's always wanted to be. And, uh, you know, he did great stuff in that regard at Louisville. This is going to be a perfect fit. Uh, So real quick, Bill, Mm -hmm. not that we organized this, but we did solicit for questions. I don't know how many we'll get to now that we're just neck deep in the AAC. (laughs) But um, let me scroll, scroll, scroll. Someone asked me specifically. um, uh, Okay, here's one, actually. We'll throw this one out. Everyone at UT harped on – this is from Maximum Effort at Horns Up Up, Texas. Everyone at UT harped on Charlie for not making halftime adjustments and never winning when they were down at half. Can that be quantified? Um, I don't – I don't remember that being a talking point outside of Texas. No, I don't really remember that either. Right, I mean, I wasn't a Texas fan. I didn't watch every second of every game, so maybe it was, but that wasn't ever something I connected. I just, you know, they weren't as good as they should have been. The end. That one seems a little strange. Um, I don't know, Charlie. Uh, Tanner Wyland uh, at Tanner underscore W one zero. If Charlie does well this season, eleven to twelve wins with a very favorable schedule with UC uh, USF, does he get consideration for Power Five job? Yeah, he does. I yeah, I mean yeah. I, I, you know, I, you know where I stand on this. I'd rather, especially when when a coach reaches a given age, I just want to see him like, okay, you're at the, towards the end of your career. Just spend like twelve years in one spot, see what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, the draw of the Power Five is the draw of the Power Five. I mean, Charlie, if I'm a, if I'm an athletic director at a Florida school or an SEC school, um, yeah, I definitely put Charlie on the short list if I'm making a coaching change, without a doubt. Uh, SMU. SMU. Um, I'm probably, I think. A little still too bullish on them like because we all want that we, we want that chad morris fun and we want the like not the not the off field but we want that like pony pony express swagger to come back i, I don't really care about the off field part either but you know like you as long want, as we're talking about the corvettes for the star running back. right right like you want all that to come back and so every year i feel like we've been like oh chad morris has to be it's like okay they still have they still yeah, I, I, I've tapped, you know, obviously I've tapped the brakes. Like when we talk about, you know, Chad Morris being mentioned for power conference jobs and whatnot, he still does need to prove a little bit more as a head coach. Um, but in two years, they've gone from, if we, if we ignore a record for a second, which the record has also improved, but over the last two years, he inherited a team that had gone one and 11 and ranked 127th in S and P. They were, uh, a hundred, a third in 2015 and then 90th in 2016. The, Offense improved dramatically his first year. The defense was worse. Uh, last year, the offense kind of stayed put a little bit, and the defense was a decent amount better. So in theory then, you know, the, if, if you look at that as a sign that things are sort of coming together, you know, he's got Ben Hicks back, sophomore who played a ton last year. He's got most of his skill guys – well, most of his offense period back. Uh, defensive line has to rebuild a little bit. The back seven might be okay. But, you know, maybe all the pieces aren't quite together yet, but he's – I think he's doing an okay job of recruiting, at least, if I remember right. And, uh, you know, the, I guess the fact that the offense sort of held steady despite ben, uh, a freshman quarterback playing most of the year, maybe that's a very good sign for uh, where things could head now. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if, if this comes through and Houston becomes a little bit of an identity mess, which I mean, I'm not going to – I think it's more likely than some might think. Mm-hmm. Then maybe SMU takes advantage of that to some degree. If they do, to some degree, we have to figure out what that degree is. Um, and I'll steal your thunder a little bit on talking Central Florida, but um, I'm not saying these things are going to happen or this is insider knowledge. Um, but you do, 
you see things on the on the horizon, at least as far as fan bases and boosters go. Um, Mike Riley in Nebraska, there's there's probably a number there relative to the number. They have a number of losses, and US, UCF has a number of wins before people just completely lose their minds wanting Scott Frost to come in. Um, Texas A&M and Chad Morris might be a similar situation. Um, if SMU takes off and has a Houston-like year of 9-3, and three, um, I don't necessarily think that happens, but if it does and A&M is in a sort of 7-8 and eight win quagmire again, uh, you will see that suddenly become a thing uh, on the message boards and amongst boosters, and you will see that, especially in the state of Texas, it'll turn into one of those like tweets from a radio station programmer at 2 a.m. saying, it's a done deal, like that crap will start happening. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to, like I mentioned Houston, I, I don't want to pretend like I think they're still in a division with Navy, Memphis, and Tulsa. And so I don't want to, like, that'll help to keep the hype down a little bit on SMU. But there's a chance their offense really picks it up. And we'll see, we'll see about the defense. Maybe the defense never comes around. But uh, that offense should be quite interesting this year. Temple. Interesting case here. No one really has any... Tom Herman, big splashy hire. Chad Morris, big splashy hire. Uh, Taggart, workmanlike hire. Um, not super splashy. Um, help me out here. Scott Frost, pretty splashy hire, right? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Okay. Um, Jeff Collins, not that. Does come from Florida. Does come from a winning program. Does come from a... Uh, has a great pedigree. Um, I think most people don't know that he is uh, extremely close with Matt Rule. It probably led to him getting this job directly, is that he knows... Matt very well. They were, uh, they were like young. I think it was Division Two or NAI coaches or something like that together. Um, they are very close, and uh, Jeff knew exactly everything that he says he needed to know about Temple before he he took this job. Um, he had been a guy who had been on a lot of radars for a while. A lot of people had had conversations about him in previous cycles, and it just didn't work out. Also. He had the benefit for a long time of having some really good Florida defenses to help his resume out. You know, it's not a situation. Um, also, working for Jim McElwain is a pretty nice gig, apparently. So um, he's very, very well respected from his uh, among his assistants, both uh, current and former. So uh, he chilled. He kind of waited it out. He thinks that he can win at Temple. Um, Temple, we have defined Temple as a as a Matt Rule um, operation, pretty much. I mean, I think that isn't it funny how. No one really talks about what Golden did there. It's just gone, you know? Yeah, they like Adazio took over for Golden, and they, they lost a little bit of their momentum, I guess. But, yeah, it was still what rule inherited there came from Golden and Adazio. There was no question that yeah. he, his job was not as hard as, as Al Golden's was. Yes, Golden is the true builder there, but Matt Rule, I think... I think culturally Matt Rule did something that, that Adazio and, and, uh, and Al didn't, and that's that, I mean, it's so hard to talk about these things after talking to coaches and not, like, get some of those, like, cancerous cliches that they use, but it is it is sort of a swagger. I mean, they beat Penn State, so that's, that's a big damn deal in Philadelphia. Um, it, it's funny because this is one that when I was talking about schools you would expect to drop off. So a lot of people don't know Collins' name, and then they just assume that Temple was, oh, it's a Matt Rule thing, they'll recede. Not necessarily. Um, the one thing that I could probably add to the conversation is that Collins 
is from the state of Georgia. He made his bones, so to speak, as a personnel guy at Alabama, a defensive coordinator at Mississippi State in Florida. He is very much Southern, and yet his staff is remarkably like New Jersey-oriented, right. Pennsylvania-oriented. He gets it. He understands how to recruit. Um, I wrote stories about him a long time ago when he did the, invented that whole swag juice thing. Um, he knows that personnel is going to be the key there. And um, I asked him what kind of offense he's going to run. He just said, like, I think they're going to pretty much stick with what Rule – he likes a lot of what Rule did. So not nearly as interesting a question is what they're going to run at Temple is what the old Temple coaches are going to run at Baylor. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I mean, I their offense kind of held them back a little bit uh, for a good portion of the Matt Rule tenure. So that doesn't that answer doesn't uh, doesn't thrill me by any means. But they, well, you know he's a defensive guy, and he likes he obviously he's gonna like you to run the ball. I don't know if past that he's necessarily married to anything, but that's about as general or that's about as specific as he was gonna get. And I mean, they, so they lose Philip Walker and Jahad Thomas. Now the guy who like the backup for Jahad Thomas was Raquel Armstead, who was actually on a per carry basis more effective than Thomas. They get most of their receivers back, decent amount of their line. I mean, they they might. They might be able to run the ball okay if they can't. I, I don't know. I have no idea who their quarterback's going to be. I haven't gotten there yet. Uh, but the biggest concern for me is that, I mean, okay, the last year they were 79th on offense and 16th on defense. Um, you know, holding the forward on offense, maybe that's possible, but there's almost nowhere to go but down on defense. And they lose, like, they played a lot of guys up front, which will help, but they still, still lose six of their top nine on the defensive, uh, on the defensive line, all three starting linebackers. Secondary should be awesome, but like we we now have to prove we have, we now get to see how well uh, Matt Rule recruited because he's going to be relying on a bunch of like redshirt freshmen, sophomores, and juniors that that Rule recruited, and we'll see. I, I there's almost no way they don't regress this year simply because of how high their defense was able to that level that they were able to maintain. But you know they also they could regress a little bit and still be pretty good. Um, uh, how far are we on Tulane? Year two, or, or, we, or, we, or did we give a year zero credit to Coach Fritz? Uh, yes. I think, I okay, so let, has to be year zero. So rather than bore people with Tulane, because it is still very much um, under construction, what, where, do you, where do you draw the line or where do you decide that a year zero credit is, is deserved? And by the way, year zero, for, for those of you who don't know, it's sort of popped up in, 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 sports, in college football journalism specifically and talking about a coach's first year is actually so far removed from being functional that they call it year zero. So uh, instead of year yeah, one. By the way, that's not a sports journalism thing. That's a me thing. Did I'm you start the whole thing? I, I I honestly don't know. I know I've used it no, a hey. long time, but I don't, hey, I don't hey, remember. You don't I don't to, remember if I, I'll give you the credit. I don't you don't, know, I'm not going to fight you. I, yeah, well, well, I mean, I'll take the credit. I, I, I tend to steal most of my ideas from somewhere, but I can't so think of where invented I year zero. Yes. What is the year? So what? So what is the rubric for year zero? Well, I think you know, in advance, it just it's a situation where you like when I'm previewing these teams, and I realize, okay, well. Lots of lots of freshmen and sophomores in this area, or a big identity change, or you know, having to rebuild the defense, or just something where by the end of the preview, I'm just like, I, I can't have expectations here. I, I I just need to let I need them to show me what what's going to happen because I just don't see anything good happening immediately. Uh, we always know year zero in 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 uh, retrospect, but in in if we're trying to forecast it, that's kind of what we're looking at. And I mean Tulane, uh, you know, he was such a good offensive co- coach. Uh, Fritz has been in in his tenure, and Tulane was so awful offensively under Curtis Johnson. I mean, 
Uh, even when they were good that one year on offense, uh, under Johnson, they were 114th, 112th, 117th, 121st, and 121st. Um, actually, sorry, that that includes uh, they were 121st under Fritz last year. But they they just there was such a complete reset to do, and another another clue as to whether something's going to be a year zero situation. Uh, he played a sophomore and a freshman at quarterback. Uh, his leading receivers were fre- uh, were sophomore and a freshman. He had sophomore and freshman playing uh, major minutes on the offensive line. Um, that's usually a pretty good sign that you're you're not going to be able to do what you usually do on offense. So, uh, it, you know, it is what it is. But they um, – now we get to actually kind of see some pieces here. The, you know, Jonathan Brantley, freshman quarterback, uh, was, was pretty good running the ball but was horrific passing. And, and Glenn, Glenn Quillette, a guy he inherited – wasn't any better, so we'll see. He might he might get there. This but this is year one. Yeah, in, in retrospect, that was absolutely a year zero situation. Sounds good with me. I, I really don't know how much we can add other than check in with them late in the season, see if they're making functional strides with line play, and then expect them to have a kind of burst moment maybe in twenty eighteen. And burst moment, I would just mean like they win three conference games in a row, something like that. Yeah, I mean the thing about playing a freshman and sophomores is you'll be more expensive, or more expensive, more experienced next year, and then even more experienced the year after that. So, yeah, um, yeah we'll see. We'll check back in later. Uh, Tulsa, really like Tulsa. Really good. Um, they're very Tulsa as they always are. They need a new quarterback, but other than that, they're pretty Tulsa. I, I mean. Yeah, and they, you know, to say they're really Tulsa, like number one, that's a sign of respect because they've been pretty good consistently. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, but they also they fell off briefly, and and the job he was able to do, like uh, they they lost their identity offensively, especially uh, in the late stages of the Bill Blankenship era, and so for the fact that in two years he was able to make this a a, a Baylor style uh, in a good way. Um, you know, the, the, the bear raid type system. I mean, they had two 1,400-yard rushers. They had 2,000 yards receivers. They had a 3,300-yard passer. Um, sometimes, yeah, I, I very much lean on the idea of like, oh, we don't know about their quarterback situation. But when it's, when it's this strain, when it's, when it's Phil Montgomery, I just kind of assume they'll figure out the quarterback situation. They get one of those 1,400-yard rushers back. They lose the receivers. But, I mean, guess what? You know, the next guys were on a per-target basis almost as good. Their offensive line's back. Their defense return, most of the defense returns, a little bit of turnover, a linebacker. Like that, I just, I mean, it's going to be whatever. If, if last year was them being very Tulsa, they're going to be very Tulsa this year as well. Mid-30s offense, mid-70s defense. I could easily see them uh, replicating that. Sounds good to me. Last one, UCF. Um, anecdote I can give here, um, it didn't fit into the story because I was writing about Taggart in Oregon and all that jazz, but, uh, I don't think he'll care if I say this, but we were, it was either Thanksgiving or the day before I was in Taggart's office, um, and he was going over UCF stuff. We were talking and like an assistant came in, I'm trying to paint as accurate a picture I can. And they started looking at cutups of, a the way that they were defending something. It was something, I know it was in the boundary. That's pr- I mean, this is not something I even wrote down. This is just going from memory. Um, and they were looking at the way that UCF defended it in weeks one, two, and three, and then the, the weeks leading into Thanksgiving, so the last couple weeks of the season. And uh, then they, they noticed something, and they started looking at other things, and basically they, what they came away with was that they were shocked it was the same team. 
and the same personnel. And that's a sign of uh, great respect amongst coaches. Um, it's funny because he got a little salty with Scott after the game about Willie running the score up, but he respected the hell out of that staff, and, and he really he had said something effective, like, they're getting good quickly. And so um, if you just go by that one recommendation, you know, I've had other coaches say, hey, he's going to get it done at UCF, so I'm not saying this based off of one person, but uh, that's a really specific example of when, a, when another coach looks at it, and, you know, they're, they're rival schools down there. That I-4 thing is real to a degree, and um, he said, hey, they're, they're really good, they're getting better, and they're recruiting extremely well. So I don't see Scott Frost being there for long. Um, yeah, they still have some work to do. I will say that. They uh, were incredibly young offensively last year, even really probably younger than Tulane, and they were bad offensively. For all the, the you know, when if Willie Taggart's looking at, the, at the, the, the tape and he's seeing the scheme, he's also seeing them not executing that scheme well at all with a freshman quarterback and a freshman running back and, and sophomore receivers and sophomores on the line. Um, assuming those guys progress like normal, you know, McKenzie Milton's this little five eleven. He was a five eleven freshman quarterback last year. Um, that, you know, obviously that you're going to struggle in that regard. They couldn't mm-hmm. run the ball. Um, but the fact that they were able to put a good def- defense on the field, kind of reestablish a, a George O'Leary style defense. They were top 30 in defense last year. That was good. They, they have a very experienced defensive line this year. They are completely rebuilding outside of the defensive line. So the offense better improve uh, because the defense, the past defense, especially will regress. Mm-hmm. So they've still got a lot of work to do. I'm not real sure that, that this is the year that Scott Frost surges and, uh, and we hear those Nebraska things. I think that's probably another year away. I mean, they're gonna. Well, let me let me qualify. In all rational thought and expectation, it's a year to two away. In the world of hyperbolic fan chambers, like like A and M or Nebraska, where they feel like they should be in a place that they functionally aren't, that's where I'm saying it starts this year. Like normal rational people would not say, "Hey, Frost is headed straight to Lincoln." No, um, there's a lot of work still left to be done, no doubt, because this was a team that. I guess I should have said this up front. When you're looking at weeks one, two, three, and four of that film, that's a team that is coming off of a buckshot season. So, right. like, they were really bad, exceptionally yeah. bad. If we were to, if we were to, to just indulge ourselves in in this perversion and try and figure out which which no win team in FBS of the last ten years was the worst, um, I don't know. They may have been top five. <laughs> um. I think they were worse than the ones I can think of off the top of my head, like the Wazoos and the, you know. Or was it Washington that went buckshot? I can't remember. Um, uh, Washington was the one that was actually 0-12. Washington State was the one that was truly, truly, truly terrible. But they um, had a win, right? Right, they had a win. I don't yeah. think they ever went 0-12. Uh, Bill, we got a lot of questions to get to. Um, uh, as always, the best way to get your question right is to go to the podcast Ain't Played Nobody page on SBNation.com. Um, we got a few questions there, not enough this week, so we uh, solicited it out to Twitter. Uh, we're going to mix these in a bag, but again, we encourage you to go to the website. So in order to go to the website and for us to honor that, um, let's pick one from the website to start with. We'll come back. We'll mix them in. Um, Bill. Yes. Hi. CUSA and Sunbelt. Okay. Uh, Dramus18 asks, I only got into college football in the past few years. Welcome. And I already can't tell the difference between CUSA and Sunbelt. Neither can we. Uh, to the point where you implied on a podcast a few weeks ago that the CUSA was considered more prestigious than the Sunbelt. I was confused. Um, Dramus, huh. what I'm, so Dramus, oh, what, I'm, what I'm talking about specifically is that um, in the last couple of years, some schools have left the Sunbelt to go to the CUSA, specifically Middle Tennessee 
and uh, Western Kentucky. So they win. North Texas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, yes. the Florida school. The Florida yes. schools too. Yeah. Um, those are the two most recent. Sorry. North Texas went. The Florida Directionals, IU and AU went as well. Um, the reason why those schools did that is because it was a nominal increase in certain rights, fees, and payouts. So prestige isn't really entering into the equation so much as just money does. And the, the, the monetary increases, um, I don't know. I mean, on, on this program – I don't think we would really weigh one above the other, at least certainly not for bowl payout. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. Um, so basically t- can, about can uh, you, I mean, can you mount an argument for him that one is necessarily more prestigious than the other? Well, I think the argument here is just that seven years ago, the Conference USA consisted of East Carolina, Houston, Marshall, Memphis, Rice, SMU, Southern Miss, Tulane, Tulsa, UAB, UCF, and UTEP. Um, so basically they were a good percentage of the AAC was conference USA. They Mm. lose those, they lose a bunch of teams to the AAC when the big East lost a bunch of its teams, uh, as well. Um, and then it had its opportunity, like just because of where they were in the pecking order, they had the chance to go out and create their new conference based on, you know, parallel moves or, or plucking from lower level conferences. They plucked a ton from the sunbelt. they plucked kind of the wrong teams from the Sunbelt. They went from markets instead of football quality. Um, Sunbelt was able to add uh, Georgia Southern and Appalachian State and get a, a, an Arkansas State program that kind of committed to football. Uh, and, and you know, two years ago, I think the, uh, the Sunbelt actually had a higher average S&P Plus than, than Conference USA did. Yet, yet last year, Conference USA got a little better. But as a whole, it was just they, they pick, put together their football roster based on potential, and that potential has barely started to do anything. Now, this year, as we talked about a few weeks ago, now you maybe you see it. Now maybe you see with FAU and FIU both making really good or high potential, high ceiling hires, um, you, maybe Marshall bounces back. Louisiana Tech and Western Kentucky will probably be good. Southern Miss will probably be good again. UTS, UTSA is rising. Old Dominion is pretty good now. North Texas, I think, is rising. Middle Tennessee is uh, solid, solid to good. So now you can start to see that maybe the whole potential idea works out. But in terms of where the conference has been the last couple of years compared to Sunbelt, they have been basically exactly the same. And that is the, that's Conference USA's fault. My argument is that it wasn't necessarily a move made on potential. It was a move made on things like markets. So markets. Yeah. Right. And, and I kind of – I'm, I'm yeah. combining the two thoughts. There. See, I, I think where – and we've I don't want to delve too much into this because we've talked about it on other shows. But if you haven't listened before, welcome. And, you know, we'll get around to talking about how great Georgia Southern is at least once a week. But uh, Bill talked about this. Sunbelt adds App State and, and Georgia Southern. CUSA adds programs like Expansion Charlotte. Um those and by the way, I'm not just I'm not cherry picking for an argument. Those happened in that timeline. Uh, the CUSA was looking at markets for television ratings because they were most concerned, and I think they're about to go. I think they might even not even make their revenue this year. They were most concerned with surviving on the television side. The Sun Belt was looking for a much more practical football oriented existence, and so they brought in schools that were within their footprint, drivable, and also really good football teams. They added a Georgia Southern team that had just beaten Florida. They added an App State program that beat Michigan a couple years back. So um, that's the biggest difference. Um, Tom Stevenson asked real quick, "What's the obsess?" Uh, we'll, and we're just going to hit this just just 
because you know not everybody's an expert when you come in and we don't want the community to be built on people who are assuming or we're, we're assuming they know as much as everyone else so uh tom stevenson asked what's the obsession with a mega huge conference anyway what was so bad about a good old eight and ten team conference um tom it's actually a really good question because a lot of people at a lot of powerful positions at powerful schools totally agree with you uh, they don't necessarily want to expand their conference no one in the sec was dying to include missouri no offense bill it's because expansion ensures survival in terms of contracts and agreements and rights deals. That's the shortest answer I can give. When you think of the Big Ten, you will always think of Ohio State and Michigan first, and then you'll think of schools like Michigan State maybe or Iowa. Um, you will never probably think of the Big Ten and think of Maryland. It's just not going to happen. Um, these, these are moves that are made because of a landscape, and it's always a landscape that is defined by money. Short answer good? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's money. It's, you know, you get your conference title game, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that is just kind of the way it is. Um, I, that is the answer. I'll, I, I, I can't think of anything to add, but I will say this. This segues into a crazy ass idea that I turned last week's discussion into. Uh, when we were talking last week, I started like, we were talking about basically breaking all of G5 into geography, more or less, and, and bunching uh, teams together more based on geography. And then I had, you know, I was combining that with the thought of the promotion or relegation, the, the well, not necessarily that so much as a group of five Champions League type setup where uh, the conference or the top two from a given conference move up and they play in, in the G5 super conference. Um, Still love that idea, by the way, and I think it could work. But what I started, where my brain started going was, I started trying to even out the conferences, and some were better geog- geographically than others. And then I looked up, and I basically had four 16-team G5 conferences, so G4, I guess. Uh, this would act, this would also work in that you could add three from each or two from each, and uh, you know still have large conferences. But basically, I ended up with. Uh, this is great radio. Uh, I'll, I'm going to now just say a ton of team names. Uh, Appalachian State, Charlotte, Cincinnati, East Carolina, Marshall, Navy, Old Dominion, Temple, and Yukon bunched together. Basically, you know, North Carolina and up, more or less. Um, mm. There wasn't just a ton of G5 in that little footprint, so I added Fordham, James Madison, Liberty, New Hampshire, Richmond, Villanova, and Youngstown State. Uh, to get to a 16-team conference there, which uh, fills a large footprint, but it's still a more applicable footprint. I know Cincinnati will hate this, but you know what? So be it. Win your conference and move up to the to the Champions League, and you're fine. Um, the the next one I had: Coastal Carolina, um, FAU, FIU, Georgia Southern, Georgia State, Memphis, Middle Tennessee. South. You see the footprint coming together very quickly here. South Alabama, Southern Miss, Troy. UCF, USF, and Western Kentucky to, to form a very solid South footprint. To make mm-hmm. it 16, I added Charleston Southern, Eastern Kentucky, and Wofford. Those all make sense. Eastern that Kentucky sense. was, I mean, spitting distance from FBS. Anyway. Right. So you get those, and uh, you, you've got your basically, that's your Sun Belt. That's your, your old school Sun Belt right there. Um, and then I had. The Texas, Arkansas, and Oklahoma schools and Louisiana schools together. So Arkansas State, Houston, Louisiana Tech, North Texas, Rice, SMU, Texas State, Tulane, Tulsa, UTSA, UL Lafayette, and UL Monroe. UTEP's in the other conference because they're, they're barely Texas. Uh, and then you add 
Central Arkansas, North Dakota State, which doesn't make – this is where it got kind of weird. North Dakota State and Northern Iowa would, would probably be better with Cincinnati, but I already had 16, and this is – Why is that? Uh, well, just they're closer, basically. Okay. They're closer to Cincinnati than they are Houston. But regardless, so you had Central Arkansas, North Dakota State, Northern <laughs> Iowa. Closest semantic in that regard. Yes, and Sam Houston to that mix. Uh, you could also, I mean, obviously, instead of North Dakota State and Northern Iowa, you could add a couple more of the Texas schools um, or a McNeese State type if you wanted to keep it in the footprint. It just felt weird adding all these other schools and not adding the two, two of the most stalwart programs in North Dakota State and Northern Iowa. So do what you want there. Uh, and then the last one, you've got your Mountain West plus UTEP and New Mexico State, basically. And then you add um, Eastern Washington and Idaho. to Idaho, welcome back to make it a full 16-team uh, conference there. And boom, if Boise State complains about Idaho, win your conference for once ah, and uh, and be in the Champions League and, and everybody. I didn't happy. come up with this. Well, that's right. I came up with it. I'm taking full. No, no, no. I'm um, just letting all our Boise listeners know. Don't at me. <laughs> uh, there was one question in here that I wanted to, like, in the comments, Stit Happens? Uh, this is Sir Gilms. Uh, this is maybe even too deep to into on-brand PAPN, but I just wanted to ask no, your opinion on Bob Stitt. Bob Stitt at Montana. I'm a proud grad of the Colorado School of Mines and saw some quality teams and the internet hype about yeah. Stitt. From a yeah. small sample size, it seems like the current Mines team is more Stitty than Montana. Was D2 a better place for his offense, or is it early and still in a Stitt storm still possible? Thanks. Pretty early, um, right? So I got an answer. Um, Good, I don't. So last year, Montana went only – uh, six and five, which is bad for Montana. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I will say that when, once I looked at the schedule, they were five and two, five and what, five and one, I guess, and then lost their quarterback uh, somewhere around when they started losing games. So obviously that's going to play an, they, they play a role. They got him back for the last game, but lost to Montana State, which I'm sure makes nobody happy down there. But they were, uh, yeah, they were only six and five. That's a, that's along the lines of Western Illinois, not Northern Iowa, and that's probably not acceptable. It does seem, from what I was able to glean, it does seem like it was at least partially because of injury. The year before, they were eight and five, beat North Dakota State. I will say though, I mean, the whole idea of the Stitt offense was underdog tactics. Um, yeah. You know, coming up with different creative ways to move the ball because he was never going to have a talent advantage. You can actually have a talent advantage in Montana, and I do think that changes the equation at least a little bit. Can't play underdog in some places, and right. some coaches can make entire careers playing underdog. I think that's the shortest answer. Yes. Uh, Bill, uh, friend Bob Lynch says theory: lower attendance figures plus better TV deals will mean cheaper or more incentivized season ticket packages. True or false? He follows up by saying, "I asked because a friend in OU grad remarked as to how much more affordable Sooner season tickets have become." Huh. I think this is a very, very good theory, Bob. Um, uh, I know you're seeing it in certain schools. Um, you're definitely going to start seeing it maybe at the at the pro level where it's going to be harder to do this, but they're going to be faced with, with having to do it rather than just risk embarrassment because I think the ticket market's been out of whack at a lot of major college programs relative to it was like... rising very quickly for a while. But are you comfortable telling me how much you pay for Missouri tickets? Um, I'm uncomfortable with it simply because I don't remember. I think it's in the threes. Oh, okay. high twos or low threes, if I remember right. But I, I don't believe I don't believe it went up this year. And I think it, it hundred or thousand hundred for just the tickets themselves. I mean, you get into parking and donations and all that. That's different. Oh, but the See, I have no idea. I've never had season tickets for anything for obvious work reasons. So I mean, you could have said thousand, and I would have. Well, I guess I should have known better than that. But 
No, you're Missouri listening. knock just in general. Um, yeah, I think that um, a lot of schools are worried right now. Um, what you're not seeing, and this would support Bob's theory, is that you're not seeing aggressive expansion campaigns anymore. The last one was right. Texas A&M, and you are not going to see any for a while. I don't think anyone's interested in cathedral building right now, much to the chagrin of, of companies like Populous, who design super fancy stadiums. Uh <laughs> It's, um, I think it's a combination of reasons. It has absolutely nothing to do with millennials before anybody wants to start on that crap. Um, no, I, I think they just, it, it was in overdrive for a little while and then there's always yeah. a little market correction. I think we're in the market correction now. It's extremely expensive. And also I do think you just get to a point where, you know, we may be defined as the last 15 or maybe 20 years being about facilities, right? Alabama's got a whirlpool, this, blah, blah, blah. That, I mean... There's a term for this in economics, but I don't know. I majored in journalism. I mean, that that's not a sustainable market. That, that Eventually, we were going to just, just saturate and say, all right, we've built what we can build. There's really not, nothing else in terms of actual physical buildings that we can build. So now we move on to another thing that we need to, you know, basically not pay our kids and justify for. So um, I think that now that you have 80,000, 90,000-seat stadiums and big-ass cathedrals, like, you got to fill them. Um it's very expensive to maintain those facilities, so you have you really really have to to be at a certain percentage capacity, and it depends on what school and region and things like that. Um, yeah, I think you lower the overall ticket price definitely, and then and then create a wider spectrum. I guess is my solution, and that um, I know Missouri when they came into the league in the SEC, it was more about. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, high end luxury, like the renovations they made were more centered around the luxury seating. Is that right? right? Yeah, they built they. They added a, a, a little, an extra layer of, of boxes on the east side, yeah. Right. So um, those those box seats are worth substantially more than putting in four times as many or five times as many regular seats. Um, when Cincinnati did their stadium upgrade to court the Big 12, they basically did the same thing where their overall capacity didn't really increase much, but they now have a lot of really nice seating areas, boxes, potential corporate uh, clients can come in there. And it's a it's a hospitable environment when you're doing that kind of entertaining. Um, that has nothing to do with the rank and file fan, but it has everything to do with your athletic budget. Yeah. Uh, at our, our our friend John McElhaney at Juan Fabulous says, "What is the team that's had the most surprisingly good season since the start of the playoff era in terms of either narrative and or analytics?" I think the answer is Ooh. the same either way. Twenty fourteen TCU. Okay, yeah, I, I was struggling there for a second, but I'll I'll definitely jump on that. Um, I, other other teams, I would I would accept an answer to uh, because I'm the teacher now. Uh, 2016 Penn State, maybe. Uh, obviously, we knew they yeah. could be good, but then they just they clicked on both sides of the ball and improved on special teams all at the same time. And you want to talk about narrative? Uh, think about what people are saying about James Franklin right now, as opposed to what they were saying 12 months ago. Fair or unfair? Mm-hmm. Uh, the narrative has shifted dramatically, uh, and all it took was you know. Uh, a few wins and a blocked field goal against Ohio State. Uh, what about 2014 Mississippi State? That was going to be on there too. Mississippi State and Ole Miss both. Um, although Ole Miss's narrative has changed 38 more times since then, so it's hard to track. But um, Mississippi State, yeah, two years ago, two and a half years ago, Mississippi State was the number one team in the country. Um, you know, obviously they couldn't maintain that, but they still won 10 games and finished in the S&P top 10 uh, in football. And that was a, I think pe- people are accepting that, that Mississippi State has a higher, ce- maybe, n- maybe not maintainable ceiling, but a higher ceiling and higher floor. And I know we've talked about that a little before. TCU's um, 
super interesting school. I need to start making a short list. Um, like, usually I have one, sometimes two a conference, sometimes none, and then like five in one conference of schools I'm just fascinated by in terms of overarching narrative and how that 2017 chapter will fit in. Um, TCU is definitely up there for me this year because Patterson has should have everything going for a bounce back. It's this super strange situation as it always is in that conference, so they should be doing good. Like um, Baylor is, you know, kind of been nuked and restarted. I, I'm just curious if like if Gary if Gary can pull off another another kind of bounce back into a double digit win season. Um, I think we'll start talking about him in a different way. The timing, by the way, is pretty big here this year because uh, obviously expectations are going to be high of Tom Herman relatively soon. Mm-hmm. And from a numbers, from a stat perspective, I think that starts this year. But if you're going to, you know, the 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 way things shifted in the Big Twelve, it, uh, you know, over the really the last twenty five years, it all kind of shifted based on when OU and Texas had their act together and when they didn't. And so if that is, uh, if you're looking to seize an opportunity, now would be the time. OU's going to be good this year. Texas might be, but it's not a guarantee. And so um, now's a chance for, for another, for a surge for a TCU or somebody, um, if they were going to do that. Um, at our Tent Man 13, Robbie Tinsley, which CFB program is most like the Braves? Georgia. I was trying to, that was my first answer. Georgia. They're too. They're they're a lot better. They're a lot better than Atlanta's been for a little while, though. So I was a little shaky on that one. No, trust me. He's asking. He's asking from the perspective of a Braves fan, um, and I can tell you from the perspective of a lifelong Braves fan, um, we're still completely all fine right now in Braves country with what's going on because it's because of the amount of off of off field stuff that's gone on for the redevelopment, and because we're rebuilding around pitching, and that's how we became like you know the Braves was pitching Glavin, Maddox, Smoltz, Avery, Charlie Libra, and all that crap. Um, he's thinking about it in terms of the 90s Braves, and what he's really actually saying is so good, so reliable, yet so heartbreaking at the end. And when you're – I mean, oh, well, that's, only, de- that's definitely Georgia. I yeah, just, the only difference is that day, yeah. the Braves do have that that singular title. Um, yeah. And the, and when you talk about him in context of Georgia, the Braves don't become as as bitter. Like you don't become as bitter thinking about the Braves because at least they did get the one, you know. Um, whereas if Terrence Edwards doesn't drop that pass against Florida in 0-2, I think that Georgia has their one. There are also several other, you know, Nick Saban Alabama team in was it eleven? No, twelve. So twelve. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's definitely Georgia. Uh, Stephen Allen at Real D Anconia, our friend who has uh, sent in questions before, says, "Tell Bill he needs to spend the whole hour defending putting Colorado State ahead of Boise." Um, Why? What do you use that question just so that I could uh, reference the Mountain West Power Rankings? You can clap back. Um, no, I'm I'm nervous about it. This was a this was a, I usually don't stray from the script very very much, but I I will say that the script isn't being strayed from that far because whereas S and P has Boise, I think in the in the upper twenties, Colorado State's in the low forties. There are only a couple of like in terms of projected wins, Colorado State's only zero point three wins back. And the major reason this is what I wrote. I, I was really looking forward to writing the Colorado State preview this year, as a strange as uh, thing as that is to say, mm-hmm. because they really. They were like Arkansas a couple of years ago where, you know, they, they, they were stagnant for a little bit, but when they hit their stride, 
they were absurdly, ridiculously good. Everybody remembers that bowl game. Well, the bowl game was three weeks after against a much more inspired team on a sheet of ice. Uh, they got they got nuked by Idaho, who was able to just go deep on them repeatedly, and that's fine. Um, they did respond. They only lost by 11. It's not like they lost 61-3 to or something. But regardless, before that, the last four, five, six games of, of 2016, they were as good as anybody in the mid-major universe. And they return enough of the reasons for that surge that I think they can maintain it. And that makes me very nervous to say because... Wait, 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 well, I mean, hang I, on. I, 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 did, you, didn't, you didn't actually read off your rankings. Okay, so the top tier was Colorado State 1, Boise State 2, San Diego State 3. Nothing, nothing too risky there, except, except that I put the team that, would, that most people would say is 3 or 4 at 1. Um, but, I mean, hell, I put Boise State at 1 the last two years. They didn't win the damn title. So, I mean, wh- why not pick somebody different? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with those Where teams. Where are the pokes? I'm comfortable with those teams being ahead of everybody else, but I put the, a unique team number 1, tier 2. Four Wyoming, five Utah State, six Hawaii, seven Air Force. Uh, this is where I started kind of straying from the numbers a little bit. Why? Uh, well, the Hawaii and Air Force both. I'm 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 pushing Hawaii a little further ahead than maybe they're ready to be. We'll see. And Air Force, my numbers hate Air Force because they lose all their defense every year, uh, and then they still turn out to be pretty good defensively. So I yeah. uh, kind of just that's just trust factor right there, and so. Um, I assume they'll be pretty good on defense. They're, they're going to be very good on offense, I think. I love uh, that Arian Worthman kid who's taken over as starting quarterback. Uh, I think Utah State will bounce back. They're five, and Wyoming has the second-best player in the conference, and that's why they're four. Okay, I'm fine with that. Okay, you're not going to be Don't get cute about it. Um, T- tier three is is eight, New Mexico, and nine, UNLV. I think either one of those teams could be tier two, but I just don't trust them enough. UNLV has to stay healthy. New Mexico has to defend. Um, and then tier four is Nevada, San Jose, Fresno. As I mentioned in the power rankings piece that you can read at SBNation.com, I think the biggest difference with, with um, Mountain West this year as opposed to the last two years is that I kind of almost like all, four, all, all three of those teams in the bottom four. Like if any one of them could actually – uh, it's not nearly as far away from the pack as the bottom of the conference has been recently. Ryan Dewey asks, uh, at T underscore Ryan Dewey, top five most likely OCs, DCs to be G5, low, low P5 head coaches next year? My list. Venables, Pruitt, Canada, T. Martin, and Orlando. Um, that's a really hard question to ask right now, Ryan. Um, I would probably have to do more work on the overall picture to look at like w- which of these guys. And by the way, you just say like gets a head coaching job right off the bat. I'm going to pull some guys off your list as far as next year. I don't think that Canada's one and done at LSU by any stretch. They're going to do some really interesting things, but they are not going to be ideal by the time they end this season. They still have a massive amount of quarterback questions. That alone means that Matt Canada is going to be there for more than one season. Uh, I kind of feel the same way about Orlando unless he's fired, Um, and I think that would be a bold move in year one of the Tom Herman era. Uh, Venables is a guy that just sits on this list. You know, I think he's... Right, I... I don't have Venables on the list because he hasn't proven he wants a head coaching job. As far as I know, I mean, he's really happy with what he does. He's given total agency in what he does. Um, It really is a Chad Morris situation because that's how Dabo's gone about spending money and empowering his assistants. So it's got to be a damn good job. Please don't ask me about K-State. I don't know. Um, I know everybody just wants to pencil him in there or or maybe Jim Levitt, but I think it's probably going to be a little bit more complicated than that. Um, I still think Snyder tries to put his son in. 
uh, personally. I think he definitely tries. It's just a question of whether he succeeds. I don't think he does, but I think there's an attempt. And it's the uh, Robbie Caldwell move. We've talked right. about this. So, um, Venables, I mean, if Venables wanted a job, he could have had 10 by now. Um, right. Pruitt is, um, Bill, help me be diplomatic here. I don't know if Pruitt is necessarily a head coach guy. Okay. He's I mean, very much a DC. I think that's, I mean, I think that was diplomatic. Some DCs are just DCs. Yeah. I, 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 it would be hard for me to elaborate and, and not disparage a guy who I, I don't have anything for or against person one way or the other, but I'm just saying I just don't see that being the move for him. And also, um, DCs, you tend to stick around at Alabama. So um, I shot up your list. T. Martin is possible. Um, T. Martin definitely yeah, is that like T. T. Martin is in T. E. E. Martin, right? That's, That's what I assumed. Okay. He, he just wrote the letter T. Martin, but I'm I'm very strongly assuming that he means T. Martin. Like Todd Martin, Tom yes. Martin. I was I was flashing through. Yeah, if that's T. Martin, yeah. I, I mean, he is experienced and a good recruiter, and that'll get you in the door. Um, could be could be a head coaching candidate is alma mater. Um, uh, that's very true. Uh, of this, so I'm I'm worried about forgetting somebody. So I'm going to focus on only the names he said. Um, I will say, number one, I don't think LSU is as far away as you do. And that's a funny thing to say because you, you know, have a lot more uh, exposure to the program than I have. But again, all they need to do better than they did last year is have a better plan B against good, de- uh, uh, good defenses. That's yeah. easier said than done, but he's a creative but, guy. Yeah, no. I, well, let me clarify. They could be really good this year. I'm expecting them to be the the – the dangerous competitive team deep in the season that they really almost never were under um, Miles. But even if, okay, so even if everything goes right, I don't, I think it's a Moorhead situation. You know, everything went went right and they still didn't need to make, you know, he he felt it necessary. Like, no, I've been here a year. Like, I I think, especially in Matt Canada's, as, as much love as he's getting right now in publicity, it better be the right offer. Well, that's what I was going to say. Right. I mean, it, it is kind of like Moorhead in that he doesn't have, he's not going to jump at anything. He can now, if he's good at LSU, he'll be courted by good jobs at some point. So, yes, I mean, it, in that sense, like if he doesn't jump this year, I think it's as much because the right job didn't open up. I think he could be, a, I think he would be perfect for them uh, in terms of giving them just a little more creativity. Uh, of that list, though, I would say the most likely to me is Orlando because, I mean, again, the dude just had a top 25 defense at Houston, yeah. and now he's in, at, at Texas, and okay. he's got more depth and more athleticism. Uh, what, now, now, obviously, he has a lot of rebuilding to do on that side of the ball. They were pretty bad at the end of the, of the Charlie era, which is still very confusing to me. But I think he could, I, I think he could flip that around really quickly. If you're so, going to pick someone on this list... I'm going to pick T. Martin, and then I'm going to pick Todd Orlando, who who was, you know, by the way, going back to Houston, it was 1A, 1B. And it was very close between he and Major for the job. So, yeah. um, so, so when Major gets fired, there you go. I mean... When, when he gets fired, because he, he's 2 and 3. Don't joke, Bill. Orlando, back over. Orlando will remember most of the names. Don't joke, Bill. Um, um, okay, uh... Let's see. We're, we're going. We're How many? Going yeah, this yeah. Is our, uh, we got to wrap up soon. Next week. I know we got to wrap up soon, though. Um, oh, Ross uh, Shercliffe. I hope I pronounced that right. At Ross Shercliffe uh, asked, "How much did Louisville's late season slide affect the perception of Lamar Jackson and the program in general?" I don't think it affected the program in general much. 
Um, I think it took some tarnish off of Lamar's Heisman run, um, but there was almost the Heisman was almost a lesser of evil situation. And it went, when when you started looking at Lamar against like Kentucky, um, I don't know. I don't think it affected think, the program at all. No, and I mean, and even with those late season games, uh, you know, and the slide and all that. Yeah, he was. Do, he tried to do too much at times, but you saw, like, I think especially in, against LSU, you saw drop passes. You saw him having to dance away from pass rushers the moment he took the snap. Like, I think it was a team-wide slide, and I think for the most part people re- un- uh, accepted that. Obviously, you know, because we are kind of assholes on Twitter, like, you can yeah. certainly find a lot of immediate pushback and, oh, he's overrated, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean... I think it becomes way, I- way, way more interesting this year with everything that he has gone through, you know, uh, Spencer Hall went out and I was at the Houston game. And I think maybe one other, you know, and Lamar was still, was still golden at this point, And then they got wiped by Houston, Todd Orlando. Um, yeah, I think, uh, that had, that was the Houston game was definitely the turning point, but I think it also creates a much more interesting story for 2017 and that he, we've seen his floor and we've seen his ceiling and it's a really tall house. Um, <laughs> It, and and because of that, how many people can you really say that about in college football that don't you know that aren't headed to be pros? So we know how amazing he can be. We can know how frustrating he can be. Also, his head coach is, um, you know, an evil genius. And so all that combined, <laughs> I, and I mean that as a compliment. No, no, you're right. You're right. That's the best way like, you can possibly put it. That those are all those are all factors for high watchability. So um, if anything, I'm not saying it's good that he. You know, it certainly wasn't good for Louisville fans of Petrino that he lost to Kentucky, but it's it's I think it's awesome for us. So um, we'll end with the, I think I, I've been scrolling through these. I like this one. We're going to end with uh, Joey Ben Schneider at Joe Benchy. Um, each G5 conference has at least one coach with no interest in moving up. Uh, now, I'm going to dispute a little bit of this, but his examples are Long, Rocky Long, Holtz. I'm assuming he's talking about Skip. Um, and Frank Solich, which of these has done the best job at their school? Now, first of all, as we've talked about here, Holtz will move up. Um, I don't think that's a, he's not interested. I just think he hasn't yet. I, I wish he didn't because again, I think he could be amazing at Louisiana tech for a very long time. Um, but you know, I'm really think, curious what jobs Colin Lou holds or just skip Holtz. Yeah, skip Holtz. Skip Holtz. Right. Well, or Lou. Um, which of these has done the best job? I, I, I Man, that's a hard question because Frank Solich, what Ohio was nothing. Ohio was was Kent State slash slash Eastern Michigan when he got there. Yeah. Um, in terms of just their their they had no recent success, no really no real history of success, and he's gotten them to be a consistently six, seven, eight, nine win team, and that's amazing. But of those three, Rocky Long. Um, Whoa! All right, I didn't see it coming. Yes. I mean, they, I mean, Sol, Solich has never produced like top twenty or thirty caliber product at Ohio, and he's had a lot. He's had a lot less to work with, and and I know San Diego State should be good. We always assume that you know sleeping giant yada yada, but he woke it up. I mean, he got help from Brady Hoke. Hoke was there two years, recruited pretty well, and left him with something. But the what he has done uh, to not only maintain that success but then top it is remarkable to me. And I say Rocky Long. Hmm. Kind of got to say Solich. I'm skipping Holtz. I, uh, he's done an amazing job. He's only been there like three years, though. So I'm skipping that one. It's really between Long and Solich. Based on what Holtz did and didn't do at, at USF is, uh, I don't know, man. We're only talking about tech. We're only talking about law tech. 
because that job was not all that dissimilar from Eastern Carolina. Like it just didn't make sense that things worked out so poorly there. Um, I don't know. But he's been awesome at LaTeX. The end. Okay. All right. Well, we'll do it in a vacuum. Bill, we did another long podcast. Um, because I thought last week was gonna be my last one. This is definitely gonna be my last one at least for two weeks. Um. You can follow Bill on uh, on the Twitters at uh, SBN underscore Bill C. You can follow me at Thirty Eight Godfrey. Uh, again, please like, subscribe, all the all the wonderful um, salutations and commendations that you can throw at us on a podcasting platform of your choice. I don't even really know what that does for us, but they tell us to ask for it. So. Uh, go to the podcast Ain't Play Nobody page on SB Nation when this goes up. If you want to ask a question for next week, I will most likely be back in two weeks before I'm out uh, for a little bit of paternity stuff. And then um, by the time all that's settled, I will be on the road finalizing finalizing profiles that will be part of our season preview package. Now, I know it's only April when I say this. We haven't even had the NFL draft. But damn, time will move faster than you think yes. if, if you are missing college football. I personally am enjoying the break and... Uh, and cherishing every second of the offseason. But I'm telling you now, it will be here fast. Yeah, and I, I made a rare uh, school visit this last week, and um, it was real fun being on the field for practice and everything and kind of getting in the, getting the juices flowing a little bit. So, you smell yeah. things, and because of the olfactory being tied to memory, it will screw you up when you go to spring ball. You will, like... You'll smell the grass and yep. the weird football sweat smell and, and various other stinky things, and you'll be like, it's football. It's football season. It's October. You're- so, um, yeah, just for the, for the listeners, yes, Godfrey will be out next week. Uh, we'll have a guest host next week, then Godfrey will probably be back a week, and then we'll have a couple more guest hosts after that. Um, yeah, keep, keep sending the questions. We'll have a you know, different host, but we'll have the same kind of format, and make sure to email Godfrey and tell him how terrible the host is and that you miss him well i just that's a given many yeah. many usurpers will attempt to take the throne but um none shall none shall pass none shall achieve i can i can create life for a second time come back and school whatever rookie is going to step into this mess um all right uh bill yes we'll, we'll do it again in a couple weeks how about that that's right and, and you'll you'll get an inferior substitute next week damn right love y'all sorry sorry richard johnson <laughs>